Welcome to the Payers and Players Podcast, episode 44. I'm Scott. And I'm Robert. This podcast is for dedicated tennis parents trying to help their young children maximize their tennis potential. This podcast is sponsored by the Smash Point Tennis app. The Smash Point app is the leading tennis tracking app on the market. It features pro-style statistics, allowing you to monitor your matches and practices just like the pros do. You can find the Smash Point app in the Apple App Store or at their website, smashpoint.pro. As a listener of the podcast, you can get 20% off their pro product by using the promo code PODCAST. We highly recommend this app, and we both use it ourselves. So if you would, please take a second to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is PayersPlayers. Uh, also, to contact us, we can be reached at payersandplayers at gmail.com. Now, if you don't want to have to keep up with all that information, all things Payers and Players can be found on the web, www.payersandplayers.com. It's very simple, payersandplayers.com. You can find our email. You can find photos, pictures, videos archived of top players, and you can also find our contact information. Today's guest is Ronnie Schneider. Ronnie is a three-time winner at Kalamazoo and an All-American at North Carolina. He reached a career-high ATP ranking of number 406. Ronnie has a really interesting background in that he didn't grow up in a tennis hotbed and didn't have to move away to train at an academy. He was the number one player in his class in each of his four years of high school while staying at home and playing for his high school team in Bloomington, Indiana, and training when he could in Indianapolis. Yeah, we had such a great conversation with him. Uh, This conversation definitely went longer than normal because we were so interested in what Ronnie had to say. He had such a similar background to what I would say the majority of young tennis players have in that they don't go to academy, they play for their high school team, and they're in a small town that's not a tennis hotbed. So what we did is we split this episode into two parts. This part will be about 45, 50 minutes, and then the second part will as well. The the first half is very good, and I would say the second half is even better. So I would encourage people to listen to both episodes. In the first part, we discuss his junior development, and we get into the technical aspects of, you know, of, of his game. And in the second part, we talk about his experience of playing in the U.S. Open, college tennis, and we also have a fun discussion on how tennis can be a viable sport for those competing at the Futures and Challenges level. So we hope you enjoy it. The Payers and Players podcast is brought to you by the Smash Point Tennis Match Tracking app. The Smash Point app is a cell phone app that allows you to track your match statistics in great detail. It's the best tracking device that we have found at the Payers and Players podcast. Smashpoint is a best-in-class tennis tracker for players, coaches, umpires, parents, and organizations. The popular live tracker delivers deep insights such as point-by-point history, match, and shot statistics. Track your tennis results across the web app, iPhone, iPad, or even your Apple Watch. You can use the promo code PODCAST for a 20% discount at app.smashpoint.pro or you can learn more at smashpoint.pro. That's smashpoint.pro. So, Ronnie, welcome to the show. We're, uh, we're excited to have you on the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I know we played a little bit of phone tag recently, but uh, very, very excited to get on and uh, should be fun. 
Yeah, so it's been a long time uh, coming, so I'm glad uh, we can finally get this going. But why don't you give um, the audience a little bit of background about yourself? And start, we can start by just telling us how you got into tennis and, you know, sort of where that took place. Yeah, of course. So I'm from Bloomington, Indiana, which is where Indiana University is, pretty small town, about an hour south of Indianapolis. Um, got started, really, my, my father got me started when I was about five or six years old. He he played tennis. Uh, he played at a small school in Indiana called the University of Evansville in college, but he didn't start until he was, you know, much you know, he didn't start until tennis until he was in high school. So he got a pretty late start to the game. He at least wanted to give me the opportunity to, you know, if I did enjoy it, to to have a chance, um, yeah. you know, by starting a little bit earlier. And so, I mean, I played all sports growing up. I was really big into basketball and baseball. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, I knew tennis was where it was going to be for me. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, my story is a little unique and different in the fact that, uh, as I grew up, I did not go to a tennis academy. Like as I was progressing through the juniors, I stayed in Bloomington the entire time, went to regular public high school, uh, did all of that and still was able to get where I wanted to, uh, by getting a scholarship to an unbelievable school at the university of North Carolina down in Chapel Hill. Um, and had an awesome experience there and, uh, actually just finished up not too long ago. Uh, playing professionally, decided to stop after the better part of about two years after I graduated. Um, so now I'm back in Bloomington, actually getting my my master's of finance uh, through the Kelly School of Business here, and also being the grad assistant coach. So I can, I love tennis too much to to get away from it. So I, I'm very excited to be here now. Well, fantastic. Cool. Um, yeah. So let's start with you know that introduction to tennis. You know. So mm-hmm. when you're, you know, five to, you know, eight years old or whatever, what what kind of tennis uh, regimen did you have? Mm-hmm. Was it, you know, sort of like groups, you know, played once or twice a week, or how how did that look for you? Yeah, for me, I, there wasn't the biggest program in, in in Bloomington, so very honestly, it was a lot of um, uh, my father um, every I would I don't know probably a little bit every other day or so. Um, three to four times a week, maybe mm-hmm. not too long. We would not, we wouldn't go long at all. It would be maybe like 30 minutes to an hour. Um, and it would, you know, I see a lot of, you know, a lot of kids starting with the, you know, like maybe the red dot or the orange dot or the green dot, you know, we didn't have that back when I was starting, um, mm-hmm. that's sort of a more new thing. And so I just remember, you know, being really young and having, I felt like the ball was so bouncy and, and all of that. And, uh, but we just got into it right away. It was just uh, just hitting a lot of balls. That's really what it was. Um, just for, uh, probably as many ground strokes as we could for about 30 minutes or until I just crashed. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, it was fun. I mean, it was fun at first. And the best part was I, I spent way more time at that age playing other sports um, than, I did, than I did tennis. Um, and that's what kept it good for me because, you know, um, I was a super competitive kid and I, I wanted to play tournament stuff and I was able to, you know, be, be competitive in those, in the other sports, you know, there's constantly like little game, like games with basketball right. or baseball, but tennis, you know, kind of too young to play a tournament. Um, so I think I would have, I, I seriously would have burnt, burned out of it had, had I, uh, not supplemented with other sports. Uh, I couldn't just handle all the practice all the time. So I think by, you know, during that age group, by me playing other sports and then using tennis as more like a supplement to those other ones at the time uh, was, you know, was a great choice. And I obviously didn't know how I was going to plan out. I, I feel like my dad probably had a decent idea that I would eventually wane off the other ones, but he never led on to that. And it kind of just 
sort of worked worked its way that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, ba- b- basketball, especially basketball and baseball, are my first first loves. Yeah, I think basketball is a really good sport to play with tennis, just because the the the, mm-hmm. the the size of the basketball court is similar to a tennis court. You've got mm-hmm. you know, the, the movements; it's a lot of you know reactive movements where you're going forward, you're going backwards, you're going sideways, and, and things. So mm-hmm. I think that basketball is a fantastic sport to supplement tennis and, and vice mm-hmm. versa. So I think yeah, for sure. With the, uh, and with the baseball, with the hand-eye coordination, so those are really oh, two course. good sports yeah. for that. Yeah. Yeah, eventually uh, tennis became a hindrance to my baseball because I would get too low underneath the ball, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> okay. the, the swings weren't really uh, coinciding well. But I, I yeah. really wish that you know, I, obviously basketball is great. Growing up in Indiana, you know, I, everybody grows yeah. up with a basketball hoop, you know, from right. the time they exit the womb. Uh, yeah. but I really, one sport I wish I think it was a great sport to supplement tennis is soccer. I wish I would have done that more. Uh, yeah. I told my parents that, you know, I think when I was back when I was in college and like, well, you don't realize it, but we had you in soccer. And then one time you got, you, you didn't have shin guards on and got kicked really hard in the, <laughs> in the shins. And then you never, you cried and cried and never went to go <laughs> on the field again. So that's kind of on, that's on like three or four year old me. Uh, but <laughs> I think that, always, that's always. Always come prepared, right? Yeah, <laughs> I think soccer. I mean, if if I ever a child that wanted to do sports, I, I would uh, strongly encourage them to start with soccer with the footwork and everything. I see a yeah. lot of great, you know, a lot of great tennis players out there that have a soccer base or soccer background. You see a yeah. lot of the European and South American guys, yeah. uh, very fluid in that, and I think that would that would in general would just be very helpful to start as well. Okay. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> So, so then, you know, around 10 is probably when you started maybe taking tennis a little bit more, you know, mm-hmm. seriously. Is, is that is that when that transition took place? Yeah. So I, so I think I started, I took my first tournament when I was around 9 or 10. I honestly forget the exact time. Right. Um, but I, I think when I kind of played those first couple of tournaments up until then, I, you know, I was didn't really realize. But once I, I can definitely tell a switch by around age 10 when I started playing tournaments and I, I think at that point I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I, I do love the team aspect of, you know, basketball and baseball. Um, like I really do love team environments which are why I love college tennis so much, but right. you know, at the end of the day, uh, the individual, like figuring it out for yourself out there and it's, you are the only one responsible for your, you know, how, how you're, you know, you're the only one responsible for your fate is, uh, I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And so it's sort of just an, um, a feeling that you can't really describe. Um, but once I started, I, I, I knew, and even that young, I, I, I just knew that there was a, it, it, it was an immediate switch from tennis being the more auxiliary to all of a sudden those other sports were definitely, you know, they were, they were there and they were going to be for a little while, but they're eventually going to wane out for sure. Right. And in those tournaments that you played, were they, you know, local in mm-hmm. Bloomington or did you have to travel? I mean, did you start, when did you start oh, traveling for competition? Well, um, you know, again, Bloomington and Southern, Southern Indiana in general being pretty small, right. I, you know, there, I, I did as many local tournaments. I remember my first ever tournament was at uh Wabash college, which is, which is in Indiana. Um, I might've played one tournament in Bloomington my entire life. Um, there weren't, mm-hmm. There was like maybe one a year there. Uh, I mean, Indianapolis, you know, about an hour, hour and a half away okay. um, was where I was typically going um, from 
age nine to 11. I'm trying to think my first ever, my first ever travel for a national tournament. I think I went to, I think thinking back, it was Louisiana when I was maybe 11 or 12. Um, but up until then I, I, I didn't, I didn't travel too much. It was, you know, really, really more around the Midwest or even into Kentucky because Kentucky was closer than a lot of the, like Chicago yeah. for me. Right. You know, right. so it was, you know, we would look for tournaments in Southern Indiana or Northern Kentucky or like, all, like through Lexington. Um, so that's yeah. kind of, yeah. kind of where our specialty was. And so, you know, yeah, we loaded up the car, me, mom, dad, dog, and, you know, we do that on weekends <laughs> and that's kind of just what I got, what I got used to doing. I would probably maybe one, one weekend of tennis and, you know, one weekend of baseball and go back and forth, back and forth during the summer. And then in the winter, it was one weekend of tennis and one weekend of basketball. So very active family for sure. You know, my parents sacrificed, a ton, sacrificed their weekends. They sacrificed so much, um, you know, to be able to, to, to do that. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think that they enjoyed it, but I, looking back now, I'm sure that that was a lot, that was a lot of time sitting on the sidelines watching their, their child play very horrendous, uh, you know, horrendously well, at age 10. Um, so I, you know, very well, thankful for that, but yeah, pretty much every weekend I was somewhere, whether it was for tennis yeah. or for the other yeah. sports. Well, speaking, so speaking us, of, t- go ahead, Robert, go ahead. Scott. Well, I was going to ask, so early, early on when you were, when you were playing, who is the, is the coach and you can name him by mm-hmm. name if you want. Yeah, of course. Who is the coach that kind of got you started and, did you hang with that coach or did you kind of transition yeah. between coaches? How'd that work? So, you know, the, my very, very first, first ever coach was the old Indiana university head coach. His name was Ken Heininger. when I was just about, mm, that was really, really young. Um, and so uh, he had these like four red kind of clay courts out outside of Bloomington at his house. And so that's where I would, you know, get, took my like first ever lessons really. And then, you know, that went on for a, a year or two. And then um, I think my dad kind of filled in the gap for like a year or two as well. And then um, about age nine was when uh met the coach that I had, you know, for the rest of the rest of my career. His name is Brian Smith. Um, pretty famous name in, in Indiana yeah. now. Uh, he's produced incredible amounts of, you know, Division One players. He's, you know, Rajiv Ram, who's on you know top 20 in the world doubles uh he's his what was and is his coach uh unbelievable you know all americans all over the board um from you know he's producing these out of you know middle of nowhere basically you know indiana is not a tennis hotbed by any stretch um but yeah brian smith he he was amazing up in indianapolis when i started with him at nine I, i never looked back from there we had an amazing group um i would say about eight to ten of us went on to play division one college tennis uh, just wow. from like a couple age, you know, like a couple, my age and a year older and a year younger. Uh, mm-hmm. So pretty special group. Um, but he, that was all him. Um, that was really all him. And so he kind of taught me everything. And I never had any reason to switch after that. Uh, he was just doing so many good things for my game. Couldn't say it. Couldn't say enough uh, or can't say enough. You know, I still he's like a second father to me. I still talk to him all the time. Like me, him, and me, him, and Rajiv have a very, uh, very lively group chat, to say the least about it. And uh, you know, it, it shows testament to how he was, and you know, he he was a very integral part of my life. Um, you know, not just on the tennis side, but the other side. But yeah, I never had any reason to switch. And so, you know, everybody in Indiana knows who who Brian is and what what he's yeah. done. And you know, he was the reason that I got to where I am for sure. 
Yeah, so can you, and I would say, can you talk I would say even a from, little, even even in, even in Louisville, we we know Brian Smith. So there's a lot of kids from from our there area that would would go mm-hmm. up there as well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, like I say, you like you say, he's he's well known in Indiana, but he's also well known throughout the region as well. Right. Yeah, I think not too not too long, last couple of years he won the uh, U.S. Olympic Development Committee's like National Coach of the Year. So I right. mean, to speak to, to speak to be able to do that and you know in Indianapolis, Indiana is pretty pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, to dive real quick into what mm-hmm. his coaching his coaching program's like. So, right. You know, I, he, the the question is always, did he get lucky and and happen upon a couple of super talented kids in yourself and and other kids that were in his program, or is it a combination of he found talented kids and then provided them the coaching that was necessary? What did he do on mm-hmm. a daily basis? And and here's the thing is is don't just talk about what y'all did on the court, but also mm-hmm. how did he how did he make it affordable for your parents, right? Because tennis is yeah, expensive. of course. So what what was that? What did that look like? Kind of paint a picture for the oh, for man. the listeners. Yeah. So to start first off, Brian, you know, Brian could have probably charged double or triple what he did. Um, he he just in general was you know it was never you know he was always comfortable with how he's living. I think, but it was never all about the money, money to him, um, you know, whether that attracted people because it was maybe cheaper, I, but I don't, I don't think so. It was because of the quality results he was, you know, producing. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's a great question. I don't know, um, you know, the chicken or the egg situation, but I, I think the quality always rises to the top. There are plenty of, you know, before Brian, there are plenty of, there's a, a few that I can think of in my head, uh, you know, I would not consider famous, but like popular coaches in Indiana. And you know what, very honestly, where Brian separated himself, what he was willing to learn the other ones in Indianapolis absolutely did not adjust with the, with the times, you know, as, 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 you know, as the years go and not even technology like strokes and, you know, called the science of tennis changes. And you're able to very clearly see that there are people um, you know, that weren't in Brian's program that were, yeah, I would say in the middle, like, you know, Brian was out of center Grove, um, the Greenwood area, you know, the people at North central or there's a, a high school. And then this Indianapolis racket club, you know, they just weren't, I didn't feel like they were adjusted well with, with the times. And, you know, after, after more than a few kids, it happens to them. It, the word gets around that, you know, maybe they're, these people are over the hill sort of situation. And, you know, this guy, Brian Smith down in Greenwood, he's like, you know, he's sort of up and coming. He's young, he's energetic. Like he's got, you know, the, these, maybe he's got these one or two players and like, like, look how they're playing. You can see him at tournaments, you know, because how he was, you know, it was very obvious at like Indiana tournaments that, you know, who was, whose was whose player, if that makes sense. And, right. you know, over the course of time, people can see that like, oh, wow, this is, this is how I want my child to play. I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't want my child to look like this, this, and this. Um, and I know that's, that's pretty generic, but his biggest thing was he definitely kept up with the times and he was always willing to learn. Um, yeah. He had people, he would go, you know, he would take information from everywhere. He never thought the biggest thing was he, his, he has no ego. He never thought he was, good he was never i think that i mean sidebar is that i think that you know when when if you're a parent looking for a uh, a coach for your child i i think you need to find one that 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 uh, prefer one with less of an ego because 
yeah. know, if they're, you know, if they're really dead set in their ways, it's like, well, how are you going to be willing to learn? Tennis is ever evolving and ever changing. Like you're, you're what could be great now might not be great in 10 years or what you thought was great five years ago. It might not be relevant now. And so that was so great about Brian is that he didn't have an ego about himself and that he didn't think he was too good to, to learn from any, anybody and everybody. So he took the best of that and then brought it into our practices. And, you know, very honestly, he, he made us all guinea pigs, you know, we would try so many different things and, you know, and until he, you know, saw what worked with, you know, a good amount of people, what didn't. And then that's how he would go about, uh, go about teaching. And so we were kind of a little bit of his guinea pigs, but in a good way. Um, and, right. and so th- that willingness to learn and the willingness to try new things and not think you're, you know, better than everybody is, is you know, that's what, you know, and in general, just him, his humbleness attracted me to him because that's kind of how I am, how my family is. Um, but yeah, I think willingness to learn was the biggest thing f- for him. And then from there, he, he you know, he became the, the person people were learning from. So what was, when you say y'all experimented, are you talking, <clears throat> say, like, forehand grips? Or, yeah, or, so, or different way, and it, even as goofy as it sounds, just different ways of hitting the ball. Like, okay, if the ball comes here from here, how how am I going to hit it? I remember, you know, he call, kind of calls it the science of it. Like, you know, it kind of has, be, has become a little bit of a popular thing. Um, you know, just th- this is the basics of it. Sort of like if the if the ball is coming up, you hit down. If the ball is coming down, you hit up on it. Uh, that's the very like the two second basis of it. There's a million different little intricacies with it, and uh, just experiment. Like he he would feed a bunch of different balls and just tell us just to try kind of this crazy stuff. I don't even know how to describe it. Like he'd feed it, you know, he'd feed it ball high and tell you like Ronnie hit hit straight down, try to hit as inside of the ball as possible. Let's just see what happens. And then you, right. when you experiment, if you experiment over and over and over again, you know, you hit a thousand ball, like you hit it many different ways. Eventually you find out what, what, what fits. And it, and it wasn't like, we know what to do. It's just like, we're, we're trying, we kind of figured it out as, as, it, as it went sort of, and what the best. And, you know, we had Rajiv coming back from, you know, you know, he was top hundred in the world in singles for a long time, and he was also top fifteen world doubles at the same time. So he would come back with all these great things from what he was learning at, from a, as a pro, and you know, Brian would call around, and so then we'd mess around with these things, and you know, we would, you know, it wasn't just we were, you know, twenty people stuck in Central Indiana not learning anything. We were, you know, connected connected with the outside world and connected with some of the best in the world in tennis with Rajiv, and kind of had a pulse of what was going on and where you know, really where the direction of tennis was, was headed. And, and for him, it was that, that science that he called, he called it the science of it. Um, and, and, you know, being, being on the forefront and being out in front, I think definitely gave us, you know, an advantage in, in that sense. So at what point yeah. in your tennis did y'all get fairly serious, right? So at 10, you're having right. fun, you're playing mm-hmm. at nine, you find him and, at what point is it like, okay, I'm going to practice six days a week. I'm going to be here mm-hmm. two hours a day or whatever the amount of time is. Mm-hmm. What point in your life did that become very serious? Uh, about my freshman year of high school. Um, I, I stopped playing. I, you know, going in my freshman year, I was really done with baseball, was not a fan. I was just really, really bored with it. Um, <laughs> but basketball I loved but as a 
generously five foot nine white guy, I was not, I, I could foresee my future not in basketball. And so, uh, you know, that's when a tough decision, I kind of, I really did want to play freshman year. I wanted to play basketball and I was still pretty good. Um, but you know, I wanted, you know, I, I realized that tennis was where it was going to be and that basketball was probably going to take away from, you know, my development of tennis. Um, so yeah, fr- freshman year. Um, but, but the great part, I want to, want to go back to, you know, things as they're coming to me a, a, about Brian and you say, take it seriously. Like, you know, it was you know always very serious, but he always, you know, what we did more than I think what most do is, you know, for, you know, we'd be up there if we were up there three hours, at least I would guess an hour and a half, hour, hour and a half would be just games, just really random games. Like, you know, like, you know, he would stand at the net and, you know, two on one side, two on the other with a team. And then he'd feed the ball winner, whatever. And you had to hit it or like they call it running doubles or even games that we call them like kill where you literally the whole goal was to try to hit the ball as hard as you can and hit the person on the other side of the net just like random stuff like that you know i i don't know how exactly that correlated but it always kept it fun to where it never felt like a chore out on the court you know you know we could say three hours like oh my gosh that three hours flew by you know we warmed up you know we warm up play a game you know do drill play a set and then end with like 30 minutes of games and like oh my gosh that you know that was three hours that went by just like that. Like, I can't believe I had so much fun. Um, but you also learn so much in that, like the, the idea of being creative with, with how to do it and always experimenting. And, you know, it was an, it was an open thought process. We'd talk things through. Um, there was never anything set. Um, so yeah, I mean, I got serious about it freshman year in, in the sense of I stopped playing other sports, but you know, tennis was like, when I saw Brian, it was always, enjoyable like always enjoyable um i can you know there are very there are very few and far days days few and far between where you know i i I did not look forward to you know going on court yeah that's super impressive that he was able to make that happen right oh yeah and and you know so being in bloomington what you say is like an hour hour and a half from from Mm -hmm. brian how did you make it work with school and, you know, uh, you know, commuting back and forth? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've heard that yeah. you even went there like before school, you know, like, you know, is, there, is there any truth to that? So I was not one of the, the crazies that did that, even though I definitely am a little okay. crazy, did not. There are people that there are people from Bloomington that have done that. I, I do know that I never went up never left my house at four thirty to get up there at six. Um, that was, that was not me. Um, but you know, I did do stuff before school on my own, um, early. Uh-huh. So, uh, never up, never up in Indy, but that, that, that is a great question how to make it work. I think, you know, when most people are confronted with that, you know, situation coming to high school, the very easy answer is to, you know, go off to an academy. It makes life it, in general, makes life for sure easier on your family. Uh, there's, def- I mean, you know, public high school classes, all that stuff, working it out with administration. I was so fortunate to have, you know, an unbelievable principal and an assistant principal who actually was the head tennis coach there um, to work with. Otherwise I think it'd be very difficult for how much I missed and getting out early and all that fun stuff. Um, but it, it, it was hard. You know, I'd go up to Indy about every other day, I'd say. Um, I would have to make stuff work in Bloomington on those other days. Um, whether it's some with my dad, try to hit win with the IU guys, find like 
you know, young adults in Indiana or in Bloomington that, you know, maybe they're getting their master's or PhD or something like that. I hit with plenty of those people. Uh, it was incredibly, you know, I had to get very creative with it for sure. And it was not the easy way. It was tough. Like looking back on it, very tough. And I would say, you know, for people that are, you know, going about to enter the same thing, you know, I was so lucky. I mean, like I mentioned it earlier about my parents, but I was so lucky to have parents that, you know, they, you know, this, there's no way it would have happened without, without them, you know, being all in with it. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, there, there's no chance. Um, if they had, you know, if, if they liked themselves at all, I probably would have been, uh, you know, down in Florida or somewhere else, but <laughs> they suffered through, you know, it, I mean, we ca- we tried to keep it fun for sure. I mean, and me being blue was fun. Like I played high school tennis, my mom, my, you know, my mom and everything, they got to see me play a lot. So that was cool. And, you know, I got to be home with family, hang out with friends, but a lot of that was, you know, for my, my, my benefit of being well-rounded. Um, they, they had to probably, I mean, I can't imagine what they had to go through and looking back on it now, being older and reflecting, like it, it's a lot. So if you're a parent that's not willing to, you know, give, I mean, pretty much your all, then it's just not going to work and it won't be a good situation for anybody because if you're not willing to do that, then your child is going to, they're, they're definitely going to suffer because they're going to suffer. Their tennis will suffer in the sense of they're not going to, they're not, you have to get, you have to be really dedicated to be able to find those extra hits, you know, all that with days that coach is not there, be motivated to go hit, um, be willing to, you know, before I got my driver's license, be willing to drive me up to Indy every other day, um, be willing to sacrifice those afternoons. Um, there's, there's, there's so much little things, you know, be willing to talk, you know, before I was really able to talk with like, or the school and administration and figuring that all out. There's a million different, you know, things in play. And, you know, at the time I didn't really realize it, but now looking back, um, I, 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 I for sure do. And I was lucky to have that. Otherwise, if I didn't have the backing as much as I did for my parents, there's just, there's no way it, it could happen. And I would say there's no way that, you know, if you're trying to do that with your own child, it's, you know, I obviously had great, you know, great success at the end of my high school career. I don't think, you know, a child can achieve like that if, if they're, they're not really, uh, don't have parents that are kind of bought, bought in as much. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So let me see. So you, I guess uh, maybe moving through your call or your high school progression Mm -hmm. you know you won kalamazoo in the 16 Mm -hmm. but where where so i mean that that puts you right at the top of the you know the class but where Mm -hmm. would you say in 12 and 14s were you always near the top or was it some 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 of a uh, meteoric rise there to kalamazoo it was pretty you know pretty steady um i would say up until i was i mean i was good I, i was definitely not not uh, a scrub by any stretch, but, um, I was, you know, I was probably around 20 to 25 in my, in the class. Um, you know, I actually, on my laptop, I have tennis recruiting pulled. I had it pulled up before I called you to do just a little background research <laughs> on my, on myself because I've, uh, well, that make, that I've, makes two quite, of I have quite forgot, uh, quite forgotten. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm looking back on it. I just, I was, had the thing up my, you know, my rankings, my last three years on tennis recruiting was one, right. one, and one. But before right. that, the highest one was right before that, before Kalamazoo was 12. 
Um, you know, I, you know, and if you went, you know, if you trace it back even a few more years, I'd probably go 12, 20, 25, 30. Like it was, it was, it was a steady rise. And I, and I think again, a little bit that was, I, I never, I, I never really traveled when I was young to, to play, uh, at the highest level tournaments. I never, and even after, you know, when I, once I started becoming very good, um, never, you know, traveled and did the ITFs and stuff. Like I never, never did that. All played all USA tournaments. The only ITFs I played were the ones in America where I got wild cards based on how I was doing at the USTA mm-hmm. tournaments. Um, but you know, sorry, going back to 12 and 14 is the original question, uh, between 20 and, and 25, like there was plenty of room to grow. Um, yeah. I think both, you know, literally and figuratively, I was about, I was about as short as it comes um back then um so yeah. not that i'm super tall now but uh right. you know i there was a lot of room in my, in my great game to grow and I, you know i hadn't really seen the competition much and so for me it was the more i saw the competition the more i was able to go back with you know brian and you know take what we learned and game plan from that and you know work on those specific areas uh that i needed to do to beat the people in front of me um so that's what all I did was between, you know, age 12 through 14 was 12 through 15 really was develop my game. Um, I was, I was super competitive and I wanted to win, but I mean, I started off as a giant, like pretty much a moon baller. Um, okay. and at about age 14, I can, I can picture the exact match. I lost to probably who this guy who's probably my best friend in the world. His name, Jack Murray, my teammate and roommate at North Carolina lost to him when I was, um, like 14 at this like Midwest close tournament and I lost because he hit so big and I was trying to moon ball and it didn't work. And that from there, and he knows as well, it like kind of changed, changed my you know life in the tennis sense. I had to completely change my game, all of that. But the, 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 basically the gist of that is, you know, I used that time between, you know, 12 and 14, 15 to figure out, you know, to try to develop my game into what was going to work when I was, when it really mattered, like really mattered in the yeah. sense of like recruiting and college and stuff like that, right. which is between, right. which is between like 15 and 17. Um, and yeah. so I, like, you know, I had my game when I turned 15, 15, uh, 15, 15 and a half, you know, I had my game where it was going to be for the rest of my, you know, rest of my career. Um, I was not worried when I was, you know, between, you know, 10 and 14 where, you know, I wanted to win. But, you know, the, the ultimate goal we realized was, you know, further down the road. And I think some people get ca- so caught up in results, you know, in that, you know, the younger age group that you forget development. I think that, right. I mean, you you have children now. I'm sure you see it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you have that age. There's kids that are winning now, but you look at their strokes or you look how, how they are. They're like, you know, there's no, they're happy now, but there is no way they're going to be winning when they're, you know, 17, 18 you know, those are the kids that, you know, they're number one in the country now, but they're going to be not nothing against it, but they're going to be right. nothing, absolutely nothing against division three, but they're not, they're not thinking they're going to be playing D three when they're 12 years old. They're thinking they're going to be top hundred in the world. Right. Um, and that, and that, so, that's the, that's the, that's the hardest part about being a tennis parent is when you are focused on development and mm-hmm. you do compete in tournaments. So, you know, you, you do go out there and compete to compete, to, to do your best. And when the oh, yeah. results don't reflect, you, you know, you question, oh, is this the right way to do things? You know, what, you know, should oh, we be worried about the results? I can't imagine. And I can't imagine just, how hard it's it would be. It's one of these things. Yeah. 
I mean, my, so, I, I made I made a grip change when I was 13 years old um, on yeah. my forehand. Um, I had a very Western before that, and I, I made it less less Western, not, not 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 all the way, but less. And I was a pain point for sure. Like I, mm-hmm. it took a while, and I could imagine. I, I'm I'm guessing my parents and maybe not Brian, but my parent. I'm sure my dad or something. Yeah, you know, I had frustrations, everything. But it was like sticking with the plan that, you know, Ronnie, what's your goal? Like, I think that's one of, first, one of the things when I first talked to Brian when I was like 10 years old. All right, what's your goal? I said I wanted to play – my original statement was I wanted to play college tennis at a school that I could not get into on my own academically. And ended up – like, you know, at the end of the day, that, you know, that ended up being what happened. I, I mean, I was a good student, but I wasn't going to get into North Carolina on my own, out of state. No way. Right, but, right. you know, you know – Reference having that goal and referencing that, you know, at various points in my junior career was super important to, you know, keep me, you know, sane, first of all, because, you know, things are not going so well now. It's things are uncomfortable. But Ronnie, your, if your goal is to do this, which I said, my division one college, you know, school, all that, you know, to do this, you need to do this. And that's what always kept, kept me motivated. And so having those goals as I moved through my junior career um, was was super important in my development. And there's no way I would have gotten where I did if I didn't have that sort of reference point. And so, so, so when you say your grip was very Western, where did you end up settling? And if you had a child, what would be the grip, the forehand grip that would be mm-hmm. – the the one that you would you would want them to kind of settle on, and I know it's different for every kid. Mm-hmm. I, I think too many too many people fall in love with the fact that Federer is is sort of Eastern, and so yes. what what grip do right. you think's best? Yeah, well, I mean, unless you have unless you like touched by God and you have His hands, I'm not really sure <laughs> Eastern grip is the the right way to go in this day and age. Um, right. And, ne- and neither is Western. It's I think I think semi Western. Um, you know, if everybody knows what that is, is probably the best. I settled between somewhere between semi Western and Western. I tried to go semi Western. I just couldn't get all the way there, coming from where I was. Um, but I got for I got enough enough over to where I would not be struggling with low balls or anything like that. Um, I was I was fine. Um, I think anywhere to where it's not just like an awkward bit of Western or like a Federer version of Eastern, uh, anywhere in between, in between, anywhere in between there's fine, but semi-Western is probably perfect to be honest. Um, I'm trying to think of somebody that has that right now. I mean, you see even, uh, you know, Federer's got more Eastern joke, which is very over. He's got very much a Western, um, you know, if he makes it, he makes it work. You see how he hits the ball. Um, I'm trying to think of people that, you know, top guys that have it now. Delpo has it over more, like a Verdasco forehand. Um, I know he's lefty, but if you took his grip and took it into, you know, uh, you know, he's got one of the biggest forehands of all time. Uh, I think he, if you watch his, I think it's it's somewhere between the extremes, and uh, I think that's that's a pretty solid one to reference. Yeah, and I think that's a good answer. You know, any anywhere in between Eastern. And Western, I mean, yeah, you really can't go wrong. You, I mean, you can you can work anything. I don't think as long as it's just not ex, like as long as it's not extreme. Obviously, I mean, you see, like those are just extreme examples. Federer's one that has done it, and think of all the people that have seen him and tried it after him, and it's just flamed out. It's just 
but the the average the average is somewhere in between and I would not want to be one of those extremes. Well, and I love that you know most people would call western or past western extreme but they wouldn't mm-hmm. call it east eastern extreme but you're right both those are oh, it's extreme extreme yeah. it's extreme yeah and some I mean, somewhere you know, in the middle is is probably more average just like you said right it, it, exactly i mean for sure just some somewhere in between there obviously you can, there's different variant like variances you can see in different outliers like i named i mean del Polo's is four and huge Rublev, I'm thinking of him. It's huge, but for the most part, for the most part, I mean, 90 of the top hundred have somewhere in between Eastern and Western. Well, and and I'll give you an example. Is is like my son. He had gotten uh, some. He he was always semi, and he started creeping towards Western. And right. after after this last tournament, I moved him back to somewhere between Eastern and semi. Because I know right. that what's going to happen is is over time, because he's hitting high balls because he's small, is uh-huh. he's going to work his way to semi anyway. He's oh, not Eastern. He's not yeah. semi. And I got it right now. I have his hand kind of in between. Now, he's loving that he's got a little more power than he had before. But the ball flies a little more often than it was. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah of course. I mean, he'll end up at semi for sure. That's right. That's and so that, that that's my thought is I'm going to put him in between Eastern and Semi, and over time he's going to work his way to to Semi. Right. But I don't want him to hang out at Western at 11, and and no. then end up even more, you know, aggressive. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely not. You, there's kids that get stuck there all the time, and it's just it's hard. And the earlier you can do it, the better. And and knowing that they will most likely deviate more towards the Western side. So yeah, I mean, going between semi-western and eastern is—I mean, probably the—I would probably say that would be the best idea as an 11-year-old, because they're eventually going to end up at one notch below that would be semi-western, and that's probably perfect. Right. So, I mean, there's no perfect, me, but like that's probably where. On your backhand, were you a two-hander or a one-hander? Two-hander. Two-hander. And so, where was your left hand? Was it eastern or more semi? Where Where was your left hand on that? So that's actually a good question. The in that kind of varied. What I would say is, um, I my uh, I'm trying to say it was more Eastern. It it was definitely more Eastern. Uh, me hitting the backhand, it was more of a more, especially as I got older. As I got older, it was more of a, I wouldn't call it a bunt, but like sort of. It was like <laughs> a, block. Know, it, a block. A block. It was. Yeah. You know, I my. My role model growing up was David Ferrer. Um, once I hit 15 to 18 or whatever, you know, he was right. it was amazing. But what he does is he hits. He has his backhand is very flat, and it's about mm, a couple inches over the net every time. And he either hits it deep and makes the guy, you know, it, the, gets him with the depth, or probably hits it right at the service line or a little bit you know, right around the service line and keeps it low and makes the other guy hit up. So then he steps around and is able to hit right. his forehand from there and control from there. So that, that was my game. So when I would go to the backhand, I had a little bit more of an Eastern grip because I was able to hit it a little bit flatter and I would just aim not too far over, not too high over the net really. And just kind of like not bunt, but like kind of just, 
you know, I'd hit it, but it would stay low for the most part. The whole goal of my game was for them to hit up in the middle of the court and I could step around and rip forehands from there. That's just how I, that's how I play. That's how I developed my game. That's how Brian, we, we did it. Um, I would say that, you know, East Eastern grit backhand with my left hand is what was what able, able to help me do that. Um, I will say though, I had, um, wrist surgery while I was in college and me and the assistant coach trip Phillips, who is awesome, um, at North Carolina, his backhand was phenomenal. We switched it when I was coming back from the wrist surgery to a little bit more over, um, just to ease off the, it was a little less pressure on that area of the wrist. And I really did enjoy it oh, a little bit. When you say over, a little bit, a little, more, a little bit more Western. Western. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, North okay. North yeah. And, and weirdly enough, it, it, you know, I can't, you know, if you hold a racket it just, or just picture with your left hand, if you hold it with an Eastern grip and you go back down, it's a lot of, you know, there's kind of a, like a, a trigger point there on the inside of your wrist. Um, right. With when I would go more Western and push it back, I didn't have to bend my wrist in that position. And, and it, you know, it, it really wasn't too big a difference. I got a little bit more natural spin and, you know, I, I played from a little bit, maybe a little bit further behind the baseline. Um, but that, that I needed to do that sort of out of necessity. And then I kind of figured it out from there as my wrist got stronger and everything. Um, and I would, again, I would say the backhand, I'm not an expert on at all, but I would, again, say somewhere in between, you know, you see it. I think more, um, I think for most people, I think it a little bit more semi is probably the best way to go as well. I had it way more Eastern when I was younger, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And you're right. Um, was your right hand continental? Uh, yes. yes. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I'm, I'm proud to hear you say that because, because my son was backhand with left hand was Eastern and I moved him to a semi and, mm-hmm. and right hand he was, so he was kind of Eastern with both hands and I moved him to continental right. with the right hand and, and semi with the left. And so I'm right. happy to hear you say that because it did add a little bit of spin, right? Right. Uh, no, the it, ability it naturally, to generate. It naturally will. Yeah, and I think that's you know that's the best way to that's the best way to do it. You know, because you know for the most people, it's all about that. If you the the consistent, you know, try to hit a consistent heavy ball, um, right? You know, not too high over the net, not too low over the net. That that can hit and jump with some spin. I just was never able to do it on my backhand. My backhand was never like a super strength of mine. I just really didn't miss it too much. Um, but you know, you see people with just unbelievable backhands. I think most of them have, you know, they're, they're in the middle as well. Yeah, that's good stuff. And, and it's tough for the listeners who aren't familiar Mm -hmm. with the grips to Mm -hmm. to picture it. But I I think one of the best descriptions that I saw is, is if you imagine an Eastern grip is kind of like if the, the pointer finger knuckle is right behind the racket. Right. And right. The semi yep. is a little bit one, one notch below that. And then Western right. one notch below that. And so Correct. if you imagine Western, your, your pointer finger knuckles, like at the bottom of the racket and mm-hmm. Eastern it's right behind the racket, uh, right. just one notch over from continental. So you think about right. like a serve grip, it's one notch over. And that, that makes it easy to understand. You're just kind of moving that grip under the racket and around trying to figure out which spot in there works for you. Right, of course, and so I, as we're, as we're talking this through, kind of what might be common denominator that I'm getting is 
just don't be don't be weirdly extreme about it. And you know, if if, right. you, if you see your if you see your kid having, you know, he's really young and and his stroke looks way different than everybody else's, or his grip looks way different than everybody else's, you should probably ask somebody about it. Um, right. That's that's just what I'm thinking as well. I mean, if your nine year old child is hitting their forehand way different than the other ten people that are around, it's probably not a good thing long term. Right. Probably. Right. Probably. Okay. Well, hey, Ronnie, getting back to maybe a little bit of your um, tournament success, I'm curious, mm-hmm. you know, after, from winning Kalamazoo, you know, I think in, in the 16s you get uh, you get a wild card into the Junior U.S. Open. Is that right? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, I played juniors two, two years in a row, actually. But, yes, because I won the 16s, I was able to get in. Yeah, so can you talk about the experience of, you know, playing at the U.S. Open? I know that mm-hmm. you won doubles also. Uh, mm-hmm. 18. So I think that was a main draw uh, into the US Open. Is that right? Yes, and it was. And I played yeah. Rajiv. You know, we talk about Rajiv. <laughs> really? I, I played Rajiv first round. It was the most unbelievable <laughs> thing. We were, we were looking at draw in the players' lounge. <laughs> the draw came out, so they posted it. Um, we grabbed a draw sheet, and me, him, and Brian were sitting next to We were just like, ah, <laughs> we couldn't believe it. But yeah, that, that's like a funny side note on it. Um, that's crazy. But yeah, so I mean, that was the most you know, going to when my juniors was the most, oh, shoot, it was the most unbelievable experience. Um, you know, you grow up watching it, you know, I never had been there before, so I had only, only heard. Um, and so it was super cool. And, uh, obviously, you know, for the juniors, um, you know, the locker room's not with the, you know, I would, I'm going to call it the pros. Um, but you still have the same like lounge area and you have the same, you know, dining and all that inside Arthur Ashe Stadium, yeah. just, you know, being around and interacting with them, and you know, the same practice course and everything. That was insane. Like, I mean, I had never seen anything like that before, and so it was really like it was hard not to get caught up in 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 that moment. Like, and again, I had not had any international tennis experience, uh, so I did not, you know, I it was all I was very green about all of it. Did not know anybody there besides the other Americans that were playing in it. I was also young um, for it as well. You know, being 16, most of them were at least 17 and, and also 18. And uh, just learned so much. I mean, in that week that I was there, it was crazy learning experience. And I was able to take so much back from that. And I think it kind of built that, you know, built on me. I mean, I was able to keep improving from there. Like what me and Brian would see, we go out and watch all these matches and take what we learned from there and, and take it back, take it back to Indiana. Um, but then moving on to the, you know, my, my doubles experience, yeah, winning 18s Kalamazoo doubles and, you know, playing in the main draw of the pros was, that was probably the coolest experience because we, that was time we shared the locker room with uh, the pros mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, having your locker, you know, a couple spots down from Nadal and uh, like one bay over from Federer. And I mean, just <laughs> like showering right next to, you know, Djokovic, it's like, it's like, oh my gosh, like you just, it's for the first day or two, it's just like, you're living in, you're, you're just living in a movie. It doesn't, it yeah. does not seem real at all. And you know, they, they take you around, like when you're in the pro, you, you know, you call and they take you around those nice Lexuses or Mercedes, I forget which one it was, but they take you around, you know, they, they pick you up from the hotel, take you around the nice, it's like nice back from the site. You just, you know, you, wow. when you're about to go in the shower for the day, you're like, all right, I need transportation in 30 minutes. And then they're waiting for you and take you back. And it was just, I mean, it was, I mean, come on, it was the coolest experience of all time. 
<laughs> and uh, it was also the best way to get started in, in school. Like I had been in school for a week at North Carolina and it was, I had to let all the teachers know for all the professors. And so we'd be going through attendance or, you know, like the roll call my first, first day and they'd get to my name and there would always be a pause and be like, you're missing next week for the, uh, and then I'm like, yeah, that's me. And then they would always like, oh, this kid's playing and this kid, he's going to go play in the U S open. And that's a, it was a good way to start off school, a good way to make some friends, <laughs> a way, That's, way to get on the uh, you know, professor's good side or as well as uh, yeah. classmates, you know, good side. Hey, so Scott, last time we were together, we were at a tennis tournament. I saw you watching Luke's match and you were tracking his statistics. I've always looked for a good app, but never could find one to do that match tracking. Have you found one? Yeah, I think so. The Smash Point app, I think, is the best of the apps that I've uh, experimented with in terms of tracking his matches. Um, you know, one, I think tr- tracking the matches is very beneficial for the, for the coach, for the player, for the parent, so they can sort of understand, you know, how how the match really went. You know, and, and, and the Smash Point app is great because it's, it gives you a lot more detail than merely, you know, first serve statistics or, you know, how many points you won. So that you have that, but you also have detail on where the winners coming from, where are the unforced errors coming from, uh, how, how many forced errors are, are you are you creating? So, um, for me, it was a real it's, it's a really great app to get the detail that we're looking for. Yeah, one thing I like about it is you can create different players within the app, and so each time you play that player, it'll even tell you statistics against that one individual player. Um, I also like how you can share those statistics easily on the app. Uh, and I also like the ease of use of the app. Some of the other apps don't look as kind of, I guess, pretty. This one looks really good. It's very easy to use. Uh, the other thing I like about it is uh, we tend to practice the things we're good at. Um, but when you track these match statistics, you get to find out what you're not so good at and practice those things. Um, so, for example, most players would probably think that their best shot maybe is their forehand, ground stroke. But if you watch and you look at the app and you see that the majority of your unforced errors are coming from your forehand in the statistics, now you can be cognizant of it and even work on it. Hey, thanks for listening to part one of our interview with Ronnie Schneider. We really hope you enjoyed it. Part two will be released next week.